Over there in Torres Hamsu, man who see Michael Lujan Bavakwa, and Gaigigi Agapahu, and I see Ed Alvarez. And this is another episode of Fanatsu. I'm, I'm glad to be back. I was in Tinian for a week, so dispensadzo. But I'm, I'm glad to be back. Zagov magov nai na umahami nai tatlud zanesti himas mafnut na gatsonghu as Ed Alvarez. And so we've got a, a lot of interesting things to talk about today. Two main topics, the United Nations and uh, the Organic Act. Okay. And so before we get started, though, I wanted to remind everyone that Fanatsu is made possible by all of you. All of you out there, especially those who support us through Patreon, make Fanatsu possible. And so go to patreon.com slash fanatsu and you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month, um, as, as, as much as $15 a month. Whatever you are able to afford, please consider uh, donating because the more patrons that we receive, the more we can upgrade, um, the nicer things can get and so on, the more fancy stuff that we can do. And so... But thank you to Zaunai Besangani Toto Samzu. Sidus Masi Pari Isapotemizu. Sidus Masi. Right. And so, right now, I think today, in fact, excuse me, yesterday, because we're pre recording this, Chamorros uh, are at the United Nations testifying before the Fourth Committee. And so, both um, Ed and myself, we have had the chance to testify at the United Nations a number of times, had a chance to lobby and work around the United Nations in, in certain ways. And so, um, so let's, uh, Ed, let's, let's get this started. So for those who don't know sort of about the UN and Guam, why is it that we go to the United Nations to testify? Mm. Well, the main reason is it's one of the few tools we have to express ourselves in an international forum and tell our story about us continuing to be a colony. And um, a lot of times we, we, we tell it like it is, even though it's not in the best light for the United States, uh, we're always telling the truth. And I think it's a good venue for us because uh, historically we have been victims. There's, there's no doubt about it. And those who say we're not, we're, have no relation to this. But it's, it's one of the few tools we have. And what comes about after that, the fourth committee is that they oversee the work of the 24th committee, which hosts the regional seminars mm -hmm, mm -hmm. every year. Uh, it's always in the Atlantic one year, in the Pacific in the other. That's how it's supposed to be. But it, it's one of the full, few tools we have. And then we, we get a chance to, to talk and express ourselves and lobby with the delegates uh, that come there and the member states. Plus, we also get a chance to meet the missions, a lot of the missions, the decolonization unit that is housed there in the UN, and we get to meet some ambassadors and, and tell them that we're interested, tell them that we're reigniting this discussion to for self-determination or decolonization and that, that we'd like their support. And so, you know, the work that we, Mike and I, had done uh, on behalf of the committee, you know, started in 2011 where we were we were. Well, I was going through all the schools at that time because I didn't have a I didn't have a budget. I didn't get paid. I didn't have anything. But the only thing I really could do was go out through all the schools, go through as many civic and cultural organizations as I could and spread the basic messaging 
very basic messaging about decolonization. And that was all to dispel what had historically taken place through the media here, namely the Pacific Daily News and the Guam Cable TV. They were spreading this kind of messaging that uh, wasn't directly advocating for the United States to be to, to continue to be a, colon, a colony, but it was saying stuff like, "Well, you sure you don't want to? You want to lose the passport? You sure you want to lose all the welfare benefits? You sure you sure you want to do this?" So that kind of messaging was subtle, in that what they really wanted was for us not to mm. even think about doing this. And of course, now you know we you know fast forward nine years from that time, we have gone and you know done a lot. We went to all these media places uh, in in the Pacific. Um, from Japan, Okinawa, Australia, Taiwan, China, uh, and and you know we also went and visited uh, Palau, right? And we we told our story there too. So all this stuff gets pushed up to from the region to the to the to the to the international level, and we continue this in the fourth committee. So the fourth committee is very good for us to always stay engaged, mm. because right now if we don't go. I can see the United States mission or somebody from the U.S. taking a picture of the empty seat with the Guam name card in it, and then they can report, well, they're not interested anymore. Nobody showed up. Mm. So this is why we continue to go. And, and, and it shows. It shows that we are really interested in, in going down this road again. Mm. No, very true. And so uh, remember that Guam is, we often hear that Guam is an unincorporated territory of the United States. But internationally, Guam is a non-self-governing territory. And so there's overlap and there's also a distinction. The U.S. calls Guam an unincorporated territory to try to define it according to its own rules, right? But in the, U in the international form at the U.N., a non-self-governing territory is a territory that has yet to, achieved, yet to achieve a reasonable and sort of adequate level of self-governance. And so... Guam is on a list with 16 other places, 17 total. Mm -hmm. These are the leftover formal colonies. Now, mm -hmm. there's other places in the world that you could argue are still colonies, mm -hmm. but they're not on the list. These are the remnants from the idea at, born after World War II that the, the powerful nations of the world should decolonize. They should put their territories on a list and that they should be obligated to assist those places in achieving a fair self-governing status. Yeah. Guam has been on that list. Mm -hmm. The U.S. put us on that list. Mm -hmm. Now, they did. They put us on the list because of international pressure. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to put us on the list. The U.S. went around telling all the other countries in the world, France, U.K., all of you guys, put your countries mm -hmm. down. You know, I put your colonies down. And then finally, the other countries of the world said, what are you guys doing over there with the U.S. American so with the U.S. Virgin Islands, American Samoa, Guam, huh? What about that? Yeah. And it's, 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 it's always the case with us. The United States will only do something when it absolutely has to. The Organic Act is a good example mm. of how the people on Guam, uh, the, the, the senators at that time, uh, you know, they, they felt like they weren't, they were only advisory. They felt like, well, why am I passing a law about taxes? And this, this, this guy that's here can go to the naval governor and say, hey, I don't want to do that. And the naval governor can overrule us. Mm -hmm. that, that was exactly why, you know. And then the United States at that time said, well, you know, these people suffered. You know, they're joining the service, all this and that. They do deserve something. But that's always the case in history with our relationship with the United States is that they'll do something. 
when they absolutely has to do something or else be at the risk of being called hypocrites. Like you can't, you can't, uh, you can't advocate freedom and democracy and then deny it to one of your own colonies. But that's, that's done, you know, and that's always been the problem with the UN is that none of the, uh, the resolutions or the charter talk about an end date for all colonies. That, that should have been in there. But at that time, as you know, the United States funded most of the United Nations. Mm. So they got their rules, you know. And, uh, but, but the fourth committee is very, very important for us to continue to go to because they oversee the work of the 24th committee. And as long as we're engaged in that, you know, we, we have not only a venue to express ourselves, but we got a venue to be heard. It's true. I think, so I just wanted to point out that a lot of people misunderstand the purpose of the United Nations. Mm. Um, I think uh, one of the secretary generals of the UN, uh, he said that people have to stop thinking about the United Nations as a weird Picasso painting and start to understand that the UN is the drawing that we, the countries of the world, make. It's not something that is drawn by somebody else. And if it's a mess, it's because somebody else made it a mess. It's because the countries of the world distort it. They they don't want to listen to it. They don't want to give in to it. And that's always sort of been one of those problems is that the UN is, so when they say the UN doesn't have any power, well, the UN is supposed to be a body in which all nations are supposed to kind of work together on things. If the UN doesn't function, it's not because the UN isn't working. It's because some of the countries are preventing the UN from being able to do anything. Mm -hmm. We've seen that with genocides. The UN would like to intervene in genocides. One of the countries on the Security Council can prevent it from intervening because mm -hmm. they don't want mm -hmm. intervention. Mm -hmm. And so you don't go to the United Nations because you want them to replace the United States as your colonizer. Mm -hmm. It's something that I always hear. I always have some of the most clueless people in the universe mm -hmm. sort of making comments like, oh, you'd rather be under the UN? No. I wouldn't rather be under the UN. Mm -hmm. You don't go to the UN to be under the UN. Mm -hmm. That's not why we do it. You go to the UN because as, as Ed pointed out, it's one of the few places where you can actually speak and be counted mm -hmm. to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Because the rest of the time you're ignored, you're invisible, you don't exist because you're a colony, you're a territory, and you're tucked in the folds of the American flag and you're not counted. You don't have a voice, but at least at the UN for a, for a time, you can go and you can share what's going on. And if you, if the people have the will and they're willing to put the resources in, then you can lobby, mm -hmm. you can aggressively lobby mm -hmm. and you can try to make your case to the rest of the world. But I always sort of get frustrated when people are like, you want to be under the UN. You think it'll be better if the UN takes over. Who is talking about that? Like who mm -hmm. said that? Mm -hmm. Who thinks that? You got to be really but, but, touched in the head to think that, that that's yeah. what's going on. But you, you take a look at our history and our story from after World War II and even before, there were always people coming in, outsiders that make their own rules up and make their own beliefs up like mm. that. Nothing, it's, that never came from us, you know, but I can see how that could easily be twisted to make it seem like it did come from us. And, that, and that's how the confusion begins with decolonization is the messaging they get is incorrect. You know, it's not accurate. Uh, 
And when you have the Pacific Daily News back then in the 70s, 60s and 70s and cable news at that time, they were very, they had a captive audience every night. And pretty much they, they came to be known as this is the standard of news and, and what they say must be true. And I hate to say it, but at that time, uh, you know, Chamorros at that time, we looked up. We looked up to Caucasians, you know, not anymore. We, 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 we've evolved enough from the last 30, 40 years to know what's the truth and what's not the truth. And even though to this day, people like Dave Davis and Paul Zerzan tries to convince us otherwise, I think we know, you know, because there's something to be said about being a victim historically. You know when something bad is being thrusted upon you. You know when something wrong is being imposed about on you. You know, and the other person doesn't know because they're not, they're not, they're not, you know, they're not, uh, they're not applied to it. But we know. You know, we know, Mike and I have many discussions on how I know that I'm a victim, how we know that Guam was done wrong, how we know that we're still a colony, how we know that we need to go down this road so that we can make our own success as an island nation and we can make our own failures. I want to do that. I don't want someone doing it for me anymore because I'm not a kid. You know, I'm my island after World War II is like 70, was it 75 years now? I mean... We, we know enough. And there's a lot of people on Guam and in the United States and around the world that say, well, you know, how are you guys going to make it? You can't even run your own government. It's not so much that. Mm. It's so much that we're federally, federally regulated that we can't have success. Mm. And that our, our wiggle room for, for variety and, 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 and openness is, is very little. I mean, you look at the banks. Not one hotel here has ever been built through local from a local bank. The Dusitani was the only exception. But the, the amount of federal regulation that you have to have in order to get that money is just ridiculous. Mm. So you have to put up collateral, you have to pay these fees. So, so no, no bank wants, wants to do that. But foreign banks, Japanese banks, Taiwan banks, they have no problem. You know, you, before, in the, in the bank, in Japan, they'll, they'll, they'll give you 100 million bucks to build your hotel. They didn't ask you much. Mm. But over here, it's, well, you know, how, what are you going to put up? What if you don't, you know, what if you don't, you know, it's just too much regulation. It's the same thing with the Jones Act. It's the same thing with the cabotage law. It's the same thing with our economic mm. exclusivities. It's the same thing. We're too regulated. How do you expect us to, to be successful when you won't even give us the tools to do our job? Mm. Oh, very true. I think that's, yeah, it's, it's interesting because when uh, at the Fanhita conference, Joe Bradley Mm -hmm. economist for the Bank of Guam, he gave his presentation, mm -hmm. you know, and he mentioned sort of that statehood is the most defined status, right. meaning that sort of your, your destiny is written for you. It's a template. You get a yeah. certain amount of freedom yeah. um, in, in organizing things, but basically you are fit into a mold right. and that's it. Right. And so, but independence has the most uncertainty, but also the most freedom. That's right. Because it's not set out ahead of time what's going to happen. That's right. It's not. And, you know, part of it may be, so people may interpret that, of course, to be afraid. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know about that. I mean, there's, there's definitely a reason to be caution, to be cautious. Mm -hmm. There's definitely reasons to be cautious. But at the same time, there's no reason to sort of not believe that Guam can't do it. I mean, even when you sort of, when you look at that argument that we're 
we're not mature enough or we're too corrupt. That, that's, that's such a weird argument. It is. Because it completely ignores reality. It I mean, is. It because is. first of all, how does complaining about how we are too corrupt to do anything improve anything? Mm -hmm. Number one, we always have to recognize that, is that there are different ways of criticizing something. And there is criticism which improves the situation. There is criticism which, uh, which, which uh, what's it called, which hurts the situation, degrades it. And then there's criticism that makes things apathetic, mm -hmm. that paralyzes, mm -hmm. induces paralysis. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that criticism comes down to that. It's like, yeah, this island's too corrupt. It's like, if this island is too corrupt, why is your solution that we should get the federal government to take care of our problems for us? Oh, because we can't take care of ourselves. And so this is also how you would fix your life. And this is what you would do. Like, so if you're having issues with your children, rather than working with your children and your family, you would call Child Protective Services to tell you what to do. Yeah. If you're arguing with your siblings about something, what you do is you call the courts and you call the cops to tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. So that type of criticism is weird because it doesn't help anything. It just mm. paralyzes us and makes us feel like there's something uniquely bad about us. That's a good point because, you know, you look at uh, along those lines, you look at the uh, PROMESA. Mm. So the United States felt that it, because Puerto Rico, for example, was $80 billion in debt. They felt the need to take over their finances because they don't know how to they don't know how to, handle, how to handle their finances. Well, you look at the United States, they're $17 trillion in debt. So why am I going to give my problem to a country that's a thousand more times in debt than me? I mean, that don't make sense. You know something better about managing money? Well, why is your debt $17 trillion? It makes no sense. I, you know, and, and like <laughs> you come in there like the experts and you say, well, you know, we're going to take over because you people don't know how to run your, 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 your finances. But you know who really got them into a lot of financial trouble? It was the U.S. Oh, it wasn't yeah. them. Oh, hell yeah. But the way it comes out of the media makes it, oh, you people see you're corrupt. You can't even handle your stuff. It's the same here. It's hard for us to do anything here. There's the wiggle room here with the way the, our, our federal regulations supersede our local laws makes it such that we can't develop. I mean, the banks are a good example. I, I just said there's, there's not been one hotel built. Can you imagine the amount of money that would have stayed on Guam if Bank of Guam, first of all, I make some bank here on Guam. I, I would prefer Bank of Guam because the money will stay here. But I would rather have some local bank put up the money, get the money from the interest and the fees and circulate in the economy than from some bank who, don't, who doesn't live here, give the money and then it goes back to Japan. I mean, we talked about this oh, yeah. many times about tourism and the military buildup being so great for us. And, you know, the Chamber of Commerce, oh, it's going to infuse billions of dollars. Yeah, that's true. You're going to get your billions of dollars. But, you know, in life, it's not what, how much comes in. It's how much stays here. How much is going to stay here? Not much because we're not huge contractors that are getting those hundreds of million dollar contracts. They don't live here. No, and that's, and that's why, you know, people that are sort of trying to, to, to shut down the conversation around decolonization, around political status, mm -hmm. you have to wonder why. Mm -hmm. Having that conversation, and maybe you don't agree about independence, that's fine. But having a conversation about political status mm -hmm. is a different thing. Mm -hmm. 
And a very important thing that everyone who cares about Guam should want to participate in, because so many of the problems that we're talking about are connected to that. It's not completely defined by it, but it's definitely a contributing factor. And think about it like this. This is, I mean, this always bothers me. Actually, somebody mentioned last time that we should have a Ken Leon Guerrero on the show from uh, Citizens for Public Accountability. That's his one, right? Yeah. And then somebody uh, asked a question last time if we should invite him on. And, and maybe we should. Maybe we should. But his approach completely misses the point about democracy. If your approach is to tell people that they suck at democracy, to tell them that they're the worst at democracy, what is to, what is, what is the incentive for them to improve themselves as democratic citizens? Mm -hmm. If all we ever do is vote for the bad people and we're too stupid to take care of ourselves, why should you vote? Mm -hmm. I mean, people, people that complain like that never make the connection is that if, if we always put down ourselves and our society, why would we think that young people would care about our society? Why would we think that they would think that voting matters? Mm -hmm. Because according to everything they hear from their parents, their uncles, what they see on Facebook tells them that everything sucks. Mm -hmm. And you, therefore, by default, suck. It's not constructive. Mm -hmm. It's not helpful. Point out corruption, but if your way of pointing it out is to always talk about how terrible we are, you're not doing anybody any favors. Because what we need is that we need people to feel connected to the governance of the island. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, look, you could argue that sort of people not feeling like they're a part of the democracy, it's a symptom of our colonial status. You could argue it's a remnant from colonialism. You could, uh, from the Spanish period, you could argue that it's because of the Catholicism, which makes people not want to question authority figures. There's lots of things that you could attribute it to. But bitching endlessly about how everybody is super corrupt and blah, 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 doesn't actually help people feel like I need to get involved. That's, that's not new, though. We've had many people over the last 75 years who do the same thing. They express all the problems we have. Sometimes what they express is incorrect. Sometimes it's correct. But we don't need people to, to point out problems. I think we know what the problems are. I think... All of us know basically what the problems are. We, we don't need that. If, if you're going to point out a problem, then have a damn solution. Don't just say, hey, this is the problem, and you guys are screwed up, and you can't do this. Well, tell us how to do it right. Because what good, and it's like you said, what good is it that you do that? It doesn't get us here, near here nor there. No. It does nothing for us. But if you have a solution to the problem, now we can listen to you because, hey, you okay, you heard us, but, hey, you're going to tell us how to how to do it correctly. That, that's what we need. Yeah, we don't I, need the people who are going in out there and say, you're corrupt, that's corrupt, this is. Okay, we know that, right? Obviously, it exists. It's been no, existing, right? It's, it's a huge problem. But guess what? Mm -hmm. If you want, I always use this quote, if you want people to fight for something, if you want them, if you want them to sort of fight to improve it, then they have to love it in a certain way. Yeah. So if all you do is make people hate the place that they live in. All you're doing is priming them to disengage or leave. And so you have to think about that because there, there are lots of ways in which you can 
call out corruption, mm. call out government abuse. Mm -hmm. But if your way of dealing with it, if your way of phrasing it is always this OOG mentality, mm. like in my, I was teaching my class earlier today and uh, we were talking about the, the clash between ancient Shemora values and Catholicism when it came in. And so, you know, one of the issues being like Shemora sexuality before Catholicism and then after Catholicism came in. And so I asked, I asked my students, I was like, do you think that Chamorros have, um, have affairs at a higher rate than other ethnicities? And everyone was kind of like, right? And then I was like, no. Now I feel that that might be true too, but I bet it's not true. Like, I may feel that, yeah, that's a very Chamorro thing to do. You cheat on your spouse, right? Chamorros are always cheating on each other. But that's also like this, this cultural idea, which, interestingly enough, if you chase it back, it, it has colonial roots. It's something that the Spanish said about Chamorros and their immorality. Mm -hmm. There's lots of ways that you can interpret it and define it. Mm -hmm. But I said, think about it like this. So do we have some unique Olympic-level ability to cheat? Mm. Is this like a superpower? Like mm. we're a super villain power. Mm. Why is it that we think so? There's a fine line between having something be part of your culture, but then also feeling like it's weighing you down and suppressing you mm. and destroying you. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. That's part of the problem with that discussion is that you can talk about infidelity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But if it comes with the OOG mentality, you're not helping anything. All you're doing is just saying you're, you're professing to speak the truth. You're professing to point out the wrongs. And all you're doing is, is convincing the majority of the people that we can't ever be right. Mm -hmm. We can't ever be anything better than this. Mm -hmm. but yeah, I would love to know the statistics on that. <laughs> I mean, how, how, how would you? I mean, how, how would you? <laughs> oh, somebody studied it. Really? I mean, I'm, but how would, you, how, how would you tell ask a guy, hey, man, he, do you have a takwa? <laughs> is he going to tell you? Yes, I do. <laughs> He's <laughs> over the phone. I mean, is this going to be anonymous? You know, <laughs> how, how do you know the guy's really saying the truth? You know, it's just it's just hard to get rid of the variable. But, you know? And so, no, it's true. But that's one reason why, Edwin, you were pointing out like, so you look at sort of, we want to get away from the hyperbole, from sort of the exaggeration, that, that exaggeration which comes from sort of being this colony, thinking we're small, thinking we're inadequate, right? Because, um, because when you do, you don't, you know, you're not really getting anywhere because think about this, everything that we feel warm is particularly good at in terms of bad things is stuff that you find all over the world and stuff, which the United States is putting on display in great fashion right now, mm -hmm. sort of mismanagement of money. Mm -hmm. US is taking out billions, tr billions of dollars, trillions of dollars more in loans mm -hmm. to pay for Trump's tax cuts because they simply don't have the money. Mm -hmm. All right. So everything you're talking about Guam doing, the United States is also doing. Let me, let, me, let me also remind you and our listeners about the Blue Ribbon Committee that was uh, instituted under, I believe, Bush or Obama. And they brought in all these experts, these financial experts and they put him in a room for two months and in the end the report to the president president was we don't know how to get out of this <laughs> do you remember that <laughs> and it was like 
wow, the greatest financial minds and they don't know how to get rid of their trillions and trillions mm-hmm. of dollars. Okay, that's fair though, because that must be a bit complicated, but we're not there. We, yeah. we don't have a 17 trillion. We, we can manage this. Yeah, you and, and you don't point out that the United States also has these problems in order to absolve your own. No. But you point it out so that you can understand that your problems are not special. Right. Right? right? Because mm-hmm. we can all solve problems. Mm-hmm. But if you convince yourself that it's a special problem, yeah. this is like a virus. Yeah. Like the Pari system, Ooh. the corruption, the Tsakma culture. It's like yeah. this super virus that you can never get rid of. Like an island of zombies. Altamona zombies. Yes. If you do that, then you've defeated your purpose Mm -hmm. because you say this is wrong. We shouldn't do this. But you've also convinced everybody that they can't actually do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you point out that other places suffer from these same problems. So you can understand that these problems can be dealt with. Mm -hmm. They can be fixed. Yeah, I think I think we've metamorphosized enough over our history to understand that, yes, you know, there are going to be trade-offs with what we do with our decolonization. There's, we're not going to get everything our way, but we need to get the very basic elements of our culture situated so that we can perpetuate it, first of all, and that we can control our internal affairs and continue to grow our economy and our culture and our, everything that's, you know, that is tagged along with that. And I think that, um, you know, the Organic Act, getting back to the Organic Act, uh, you know, Carlton Skinner, who was the governor of Guam at the time the Organic Act was passed, I had the uh, privilege of him coming to my class here at the university and talking to us about the Organic Act. And I took two things away from his lecture. The first thing I took away was that the Organic Act was never meant to be a permanent Mm -hmm. governance Mm -hmm. act. It was only supposed to be temporary until self-determination, self-determination at that time was completed. The second thing I took away from that lecture was that, um, was that um, we truly haven't come full circle. So, you know, this misnomer about us being liberated because the Americans, after they abandoned us, came back and rescued us. It really should have been called a rescue because that's really what happened. They didn't liberate us because even their own people like Daryl Doss said, no, we haven't, we haven't, we haven't liberated you. We rescued you only. But that's what he, you know, he, he, he made it clear that no, you didn't go. You didn't, you, the people of Guam have not gone full circle mm. and we still need to do that. So those are the two things I took away from that lecture was that the, the organic deck was just a temporary measure. And you can see how it was a temporary measure because it didn't take them that long to negotiate it. It didn't take them that, what, two months, I think that took um, almost two months, maybe a month and whatever it was. I mean, you, you can compare that to when the Commonwealth Draft Act was passed and it began its congressional hearings and all that, that took years and we, we still couldn't get it. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so the, you, it's easy to, to deduct that it was meant to be a temporary measure because mm. some people are on the, under the impression that no, there, there was your, there was your self-determination. No, it wasn't. And those are also people that come to Guam and say, make their own rules up, you know, and we have a lot of people doing that. We have a lot of people coming there and goes, well, it looks like this to me. Like, That's not what it is. You know, you, when you find the truth or search for the truth, you, you should, you, you should believe the truth when you hear it. 
you know, and th- those are the two things. And he was, you know, it was, it was very interesting to hear from him at the time about the organic deck and how, and what was going on at that time and how the, you know, the, the senators walked out because of a tax law that they were trying to tax some businessmen from the States and the businessmen from the States went to the naval governor and said, you know, Hey, we don't want to pay these taxes, you know, just apply to these guys, but not us, you know, and it was like the naval governor, you know, tend to agree with them. And then next thing you know, they say, well, you know, why are we here? Why do we have this body that going to pass laws? We can, we just, when he can just in a snap of his finger say, nope, ain't going to happen. No, no, very true. When thinking about the organic act, what is its role or what is its position, right? Mm -hmm. In our journey towards Mm self-governance. And, and you're very right. It's good that you quote Carlton Skinner because even he acknowledged that it's not supposed to be the end of the discussion, that the people of Guam really are supposed to go beyond that. And that, um, you know, what that is, is part of a conversation we have to have. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I'm just, I am always disappointed because we don't learn enough about the Organic Act. Yeah. We kind of throw around the Constitution yeah. and then we forget that we're a territory. The most important part of the constitution for a territory is the territorial clause, hmm. which, which, hmm. which gives Congress absolute plenary authority right. over what happens in the territories. And that was reiterated by, what's his name? Patch Adams? Oh, Mark Adams. Oh, Christian Adams. <laughs> Christian Adams. <laughs> uh, yeah, over there, at the, you know, when, he, when he, he said, he testified that Congress has exclusive powers over the mm-hmm. territories. That, that in itself is such a colonial statement. Oh, it I is. mean, how, how, how much more colonial can you get when you can tell, when a lawyer can tell Congress, hey, you guys can do anything with these guys because you have the power. Yeah. That, that, I mean, if anyone doubts that we're a colony after that statement, well, I don't know where you're living, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that is the, like one of the most colonial statements I've heard. That's no, very true. Mm-hmm. But how many people on Guam even understand what the Organic Act is. Mm-hmm. How many people on Guam today have a good sense of it? So that's why I always feel a little bit frustrated because our children on Guam are taught about the U.S. Constitution, you know, and they're taught to memorize some of the amendments and stuff like that and the basic structure of it. But they're rarely taught about the Organic Act. They're supposed to be in mm-hmm. small ways. But they come out of their school system basically quoting the Constitution's the greatest document in the world and it's mm-hmm. this and that. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand how that helps us. Mm-hmm. I really don't understand how that helps us. It's like basically we wish that the Constitution applied to us and we wish that we were something more than we are. How does that help us? You know, how does I, that help us? I look at the Constitution in its application to Guam. I compare it to a life insurance policy. If any of you ever had life insurance policy, you listen to what the guy says. He says, okay, you get this, you get that, right? You never read the policy. You throw it in the drawer. All you know is that you've got X amount of hundreds of thousand dollars once you die. That's all you care about. But you don't take the time to go through all those finite details (laughs) in the life insurance policy that says all kinds of things that if you knew about it, you wouldn't even get that life insurance policy. <laughs> so, you know, and that, that's a good comparison because a lot of people do have life insurance policies. I, but I bet you a lot of people don't read them. Yeah. You know. Nowadays, I think people say iTunes user agreement or software yeah. user agreement. Mm. Just can I click it? Can I G- click it? <laughs> Just, 
explained. And so in it, I'm going to be kind of talking about the past, the present, the future of the Organic Act. And, um, you know, one of the reasons why this is important is because we don't learn a lot about the Organic Act in schools. Mm -hmm. People don't really think about it. People know it's tied to American citizenship. That's the primary thing that they know about it. And then they just kind of, you know, it, it's out there. It's got something to do with our connection to the United States. But they don't really really know or understand it. And so the, the current congressman, the delegate, Michael Senecolas, he has put forth, introduced one bill to amend the Organic Act, and he says he's going to introduce another bill to amend the Organic Act around tax refunds and to require a referendum uh, in the case of any tax increase uh, for the people of Guam. And so him using the Organic Act for these sorts of things is, is interesting. And it's something that we really should talk about because he has legitimate issues. Mm. These are legitimate concerns that the community should take up. And there really should be a, a very strong, robust conversation about is the Organic Act the best place to do it? Is the Organic Act the best place to do it? Or Are there other ways of affecting these types of change if that's what you want to do? Hmm. And putting this reform in the context of a larger push for self-governance, larger relationship, larger context of relationship to the U.S. federal government. And so really putting it in that context so people can kind of think about it and think, is, is this the best way to do it? Is this the only way to do it? Are there hmm. other ways? Hmm. And for me, going back to the discussion before, You need to have those conversations locally. I think those conversations should have taken place first. No, I mean... Before, I, before even the idea of introducing a bill for tax reform or whatever. I think those discussions needed to be had here on Guam. Because, yeah. because you know, things can be learned. You know, and I, and I for one, feel this way. I'm, we don't govern very much. We don't handle very much of our government. We are so federally regulated... We are so federally overseen that you want to give up one of the few things we have jurisdiction of, property and tax. Mm -hmm. I don't want to give that up. I mean, that, that just plays into their hands and, and makes it seem like, see, mm -hmm. we have to do everything for you. Yeah. You know, and I don't want that. I mean, I, hey, you know, like I said, you know, at this time in our history, in this time in our development of Guam, it's time for us to make our own success and to make our own failures. We, we, we don't need anyone to do it for us anymore. We, we're very capable of doing it ourselves. And, and a, a lot of people doubt that, you know, but I always, I always bring that example up and you, you, always, you always catch me on it. You always know I'm doing this. I always make it an example to talk about someone who's getting married and moving out of their parents' house. All the anxiety, all the unsurety, all the insecurity, but a lot of people manage to get a career, get a house, get a car, and they manage to live away from their parents quite fine. This is what 
decolonization is about. It's about getting rid of your colonizer and saying, you know, you've had your chance. Can we have our chance now mm-hmm. to, to, to make our own success or our own failure? You know, and that's what, remember, Tommy Remengasau, mm-hmm. President Tommy, he told us exactly that. And that rang, that rang true for me. I was like, I get, I get what he says. You know, I understand that Palau can either sink or swim, but they are now forced to work with each other and put their best foot forward mm-hmm. to be successful. You know, and that's what we need. We don't we don't need to be criticized mm-hmm. about not being able to handle our finances and only on Guam is you get nepotism and corruption only on Guam. No, we don't need that. We, you know, we're not as bad off as other places. If anyone has traveled around the world, we're actually quite good. But that's that that's not to say that we shouldn't improve. Yeah, because there's there, everywhere we go in the world, there's trade offs. There's always trade-offs. American Samoa was a good example. Dan Aga was here. And he talked about they still hold on to their roots. They still know how to cook traditionally. They know how to make a hut traditionally. They know how to do all those things traditionally. But on the same breath, he also says, man, but Guam, you're so modernized. You know, you've got all this big malls. You've got Kentucky Fried Chicken. you got, you know, it's not, not Kentucky, KFC. you got McDonald's. Oh, man, it's great, you know. So there's the trade-offs there, you mm-hmm. know. And, and Dan acknowledges that, you know, that it seems that although we are, we keep our language, we keep our culture, there's trade-offs. We're not as modern as you, as you people on Guam are. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Having that conversation would be, would be ideal. You know, it's, yeah. And, and learning more about ourselves because it's really easy for every generation to kind of, to, to reach a certain age and look around and think that nothing was before them and that everything they do will echo in time after them. Uh, you know, I remember Mike, when I was a sophomore at this college or this university, I remember feeling that sense of nationalism. Mm. I remember looking around and saying, hey, this is not right. Mm. There's a lot of wrong here. And the more I delved into, the more I read me and Leland Bettis, mm. The more and more we found out, the more and more I was infuriated. But I knew I couldn't be too infuriated because there are trade-offs. Some good things have come about our history of development and and some bad things have. But what we want is the chance to do it ourselves. Oh, yes. That's that's the difference. I would rather have my day to say, okay... This is what I'm going to do to improve our lives here on Guam, rather than somebody thousands of miles away saying, "Now nah, I think this is what they should do." That's all I want, you know. Give it to us. I mean, I, you know, we're, I don't think that we're going to force the military to leave. Although I know there are some some radicals who who would want them to leave, but no, I think I think we can come to a happy medium whether it's free association or independence. It doesn't, I mean, we have to understand that the political status options are labels. That's what mm. they are. That's all they're not, they are. They're labels. I'm sure if we compare and contrast freely associated states and independent countries and island nations that we'll find those. Of course. We'll find those trade-offs. But, you know, I'm, I'm just not scared to do it anymore because quite frankly, I've failed so much. I'm not scared to fail. But, but that seems to be a mindset of our people. It seems to be a mindset that, oh, man, I don't want to do that because I might fail. And if I fail, shit, everyone's going everyone's gonna to look at me. Oh, so what? 
<laughs> I, I, you know, to me, I didn't care. I failed many times in many ways, you know, but now I'm like, well, did I learn something? Oh yeah, I learned a lot. So I really didn't fail. You know? oh, and, and what you're talking about there is, is we learn from the past. We learn from experience. And I always like to quote, um, because, you know, when thinking about what the Organic Act represented, in a, in a certain time, the Organic Act represented an improvement, a dramatic improvement. Citizenship, a civilian government, the end of naval rule, military rule. This was, thing that, this was something that Chmuros had lobbied for a long time and they finally got. But what they found is that it didn't actually solve a lot of the problems that they felt about their relationship to the United States, that they were citizens, but they were still being disrespected and still kind of not being treated very well by the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so then you say, well, we got to evolve. We got to move. And so we can kind of, and so some people, even including sort of the congressmen, they look to the time since World War II and the attempts to change our status as failures, as failures, as just a waste of time. Mm -hmm. But really, I don't think that you should look at it like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's if you're just thinking in terms, in a very narrow way, but you're not thinking about how even just the way that we talk about things nowadays, it's part of that evolution of our discussion, right? Mm -hmm. Before you couldn't criticize the military. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember people telling me that in the 70s, people had anger about the military presence on the island, but instead they would just take it out by beating up students, by mm -hmm. beating up kids or beating up sailors. Mm -hmm. But look, eventually sort of people pushed, they put critical thoughts out there. And so then people don't go around beating up military people anymore. They express it, they protest it, they seek to reform and change the island because of the concerns they have. I witnessed that growing up in the 60s and 70s. I witnessed that yeah. happening. No, and you know? so this is all part of our evolution. Mm -hmm. This is all part of our evolution. And I always am reminded of the late Sus Leon Guerrero, who was you know, the, one of the co-founders of the Bank of Guam. Mm -hmm. You know, he said, when I interviewed him, he said, don't let anyone tell you that Uncle Sam gave us everything or that we are only here because of Uncle Sam. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, the Chamorro people worked hard to rebuild this island, to try to make, get the government going. You know, we did that. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't let America take the credit for what we did. Mm -hmm. They helped, but we did it. Mm -hmm. And I always liked that perspective because mm -hmm. it's like, we have problems. Should we allow the fact that we have problems rob us, rob us of our sense of um, agency or our ability to affect the world around us. No, we need to stop sort of dragging ourselves down like that. It just doesn't help, but, doesn't really improve. But, but you look at that in, in, in that history of, of itself, we still survived in a very new kind of world, in a very mm. new kind of way. Chamorro survived. We are survivors. We can do this, man. You know, it's not, it's not insurmountable. Mm. But it's, I, I see that behavior... I've seen it throughout the decades. Oh, let's not do this because what if that happens? Then what if this happens? I mean, I, I never understood that because I was too busy failing to understand. Oh, what, so, so what? So what if it does happen? I mean, it's okay. Right? So it's not, you know, you just, you, just, you just move on, learn, and don't repeat it again. Yeah, it's like, should you, should you postpone living? 
Until everything is ready? No. <laughs> Can't do that, man. Yeah. And so we are, we are just about out of time. Mm -hmm. And so I want to remind everyone again. And so, oh, I do want to sort of say Nayanimu and give, uh, give uh, a shout out and props to those who are at the United Nations at the fourth committee now. I know representing independent Guahan and other groups on Guam are Sam Barnett, Leo Lujan Orsini, Pimlim Chiaco, Julia Fe Munoz, and Andrew Gumatauto. And so Sidus Masin, Utoro Samso, there's also some elected leaders and officials that are out there as well. Um, and thank you for taking Guam's message out there. Um, and uh, yeah, doing your best to sort of tell the international community our story. And so just a reminder as well, next Thursday, uh, the Organic Act Explained, that's October 17th, 6 p.m., UOG HSS 106. And sign up as a patron if you are not a patron yet, put for bot. And Zaunay, Nabe Sangani Estit at Luhu Guini, Sidus Masi Tatlu Edson, Sidus Masi Tatlu. And so, Ajos, Estaki, Otribirada.